Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I was actually in a Beyond Meat lab about three or four years ago before any of this took off. They put sodium in them and saturated fat to make them taste good. They're using coconut fat. They've ramped up the saturated fat. They've ramped up the sodium. This stuff, good for the environment, good for animals, but probably bad for your health. I actually have in my purview the ability to design a study that would say, okay, if you ate one versus the other, what would happen to your blood pressure, your LDL cholesterol, your weight? You know, I said, I I don't know how it's going to work out. I got to tell you, it's got to be an objective study. And so if it hurts people, I got to publish it. And they said, no, we're in. We really want our stuff to do the right thing. thing, thing." That's Professor Christopher Gardner from Stanford University. And this is the Plant Proof Podcast. beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Dr. Gardner, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Simon. Thanks for having me back. Well, our last episode on the low versus high carb diets was certainly a big hit. So I am very grateful to have you back on. And and I know that the, the listeners will be looking forward to this as well. I'm thinking today we explore two studies, both of these studies uh, looking at high quality animal-based meat versus plant-based meat. One being the the metabolomics study out of Duke University that was interested in understanding what differences may exist between these products beyond the nutritional information panel, things like creatine, specific amino acids, polyphenols, etc. And then, of course, your randomized crossover trial, the swap meat trial, which was more interested in assessing what happens to various biomarkers and risk factors for cardiovascular disease. It probably makes sense to start with the metabolomics study and then sort of zoom out to your clinical trial, which is perhaps a little bit more instructive in terms of how the listeners may want to think about their own dietary choices. Sure. I didn't go all that deep into the metabolomics study, but I can tell what it is. They're looking at the different components in meat and the alternative meat, and there's a lot of components in there. Cool. And I guess in terms of what they were interested in looking at, I mean, their overall conclusion was less about the health effects of these products, but more around the fact that there are substantial differences in metabolites within sort of various classes. And they seem to suggest that these products should not be viewed as nutritionally interchangeable. Right. And that, but that makes sense. That's no surprise at all. And you even sent me some stuff and I had it anyway. Marion Nessel has been writing about this already. Sort of a duh, 
they, they had different things. I mean, if you, I guess because you might replace a burger or a chicken breast with an alternative meat product, it would certainly be more similar than something else. Like you could obviously compare it to coffee, which has a thousand different types of chemicals in it. And you'd say, huh, the meat's different than the coffee. Well, yeah, because coffee has a thousand different chemicals in it and they're not the same. That wouldn't be the same comparison because you would never say, oh, let's see, am I going to have a cup of coffee tonight or am I going to have a burger? Say, am I going to have the real meat burger versus the plant meat burger? Am I getting everything except the meat, right? I mean, that would be a really hard thing to figure out. How much should be similar and how much should be different? So, I mean, if you started there, don't we like that there's more fiber in the alternative meats? Wouldn't you expect a plant-based meat to have fiber and you would never expect real meat to have fiber? That would be missing. How about iron, right? And so in any kind of plant-based meat, if there is any iron from the pea protein or something, it wouldn't be heme iron. Heme iron is more bioavailable and it comes from animal meat. It comes from products that had blood in it. And that iron is more bioavailable. You wouldn't expect to find it in the plant. If you were anemic, you'd probably do better eating the meat, getting the iron out of that for bioavailability. Although impossible, tried to add the soy heme to it. I, I don't actually know if anybody's ever tested that to see how that addresses anemia. It's not, we haven't gone far enough to do health studies on things like that. So like, like you just said, this metabolomics is characterizing the different chemical compounds in the real meat versus the alternative meat, and they're not the same. I'm not sure what to say to that. I would not have expected them to be the same. And if I could take it a step further... So, Simon, think about all the things that there are recommended daily allowances for, and there aren't very many. There is a small set of vitamins and a small set of minerals. Outside of that, you mentioned creatine, you mentioned polyphenols, there's a whole list of antioxidants. If you go back in history and nutrition to where they came up with a recommended daily allowance for a vitamin or a mineral, that didn't happen overnight. And even though you might see a label on a food that says it has this much of the RDA, if you did the deeper dive, you would go back in and see that in the, the tomes of books uh, from the DRI, the dietary reference intakes, that actually say what the RDAs are for all these vitamins and minerals, they have different levels for men versus women at different ages or pregnancy or lactation. There isn't one. There's a lot. And so to do these, you have to do multiple studies in multiple age groups. And is there a clear health outcome? Take iron as an example, right? So anemia, if you are anemic, that probably the onset of that could have come on within months and it can be resolved in months. And so you can actually play a lot with the dose and the source of iron and figure that out. Can you do the same thing with calcium and osteoporosis? No. It takes decades for osteoporosis to manifest and to have a hip fracture. And so for a long time, whether you know this or not, uh, there's, there's another subcategory under recommended daily allowance, and that is an adequate intake. And we have a bunch of nutrients, vitamins and minerals, for which not actually sure what the RDA is for men versus women in different age groups. And so they say this is an adequate intake. We've kind of looked at the science. It's not sufficiently definitive 
to have an RDA. So for now, it has an adequate intake. And it wasn't until 2011 that we had an RDA for calcium and vitamin D. Before that, both of them were adequate intakes, partly because if you get to that point, you're supposed to have it for men and women, different ages, pregnancy and lactation, and know about it from different sources of food in case there's different bioavailability. So now talk about creatine and polyphenols and antioxidants and beta carotene. And those studies haven't been done. So when you characterize something and say, oh, it's got all these cool compounds in them, chemicals, you know, journals never had this before. And I don't know what the parallel would be in the animal world kingdom, but at least in the plant world kingdom, an overall arching name for them has been phytochemicals, which is kind of a goofy name because phyto just means plant, right? And so they are chemicals in plants. There's a lot of chemicals in plants that people think are interesting. (gasps) Anthocyanins in blueberries. Should we get those? Probably. They're an antioxidant. How much? From what source? Well, that's probably kind of obvious blueberries. Everybody's into blueberries for anthocyanins, but there's other foods that have them. We don't have an RDA. We don't have an AI, an adequate intake. The deficiency symptoms and the resolution of those isn't really available for each one of those. And so as intriguing as they are, that they are probably compounds of interest to human health, outside of the vitamins and minerals, it's really hard to say anything specific from a health perspective because that hasn't been carried out in all those things. So I have to say my knee-jerk reaction to that study about the metabolomics was cool that it has different things. I'm not surprised that plants and meats have different things. Not surprised that they said we can't say what the health impacts of these things are because that hasn't been worked out. There's a lot of putative activities for those things, but not definitive yet. I don't know if that helps. No, it certainly helps. And I mean, it kind of speaks... I guess, more broadly to when we're looking at the health effects of a food, you can get super reductionist and look right in at them, or we can step out and look at, you know, at an observational level uh, in epidemiology, what are typical outcomes of people that are eating certain foods regularly or irregularly. And then of course, in clinical trial settings, like what you do, what happens when people eat a certain way in terms of things that matter a little bit more and, you know, risk factors and harder sort of health outcomes. Yeah. That's why, you know, in all the stuff that I do, I only do pretty much one kind of trial. I only intervene in humans and their behavior to see what happens. And then I cite the mechanistic studies when I write up the paper and I say, there was a plausible reason this would work because there is a chemical structure that does this. And somebody else fed it to a mouse and it had this impact on the liver. And plus, there's epidemiological evidence that the countries that eat the most of this versus the least have a different health outcome. And so now I'm trying to frame my study in 100 people that went on for two months where I got them to eat more or less of X and B. But I have to include all these other perspectives in, diving in and out, as you said. So Really important to do the reductionist thing and go to that level where you can control everything, but also really great to step back and say, okay, but what if real people ate it or tried? Would they eat it? How much would they eat? For how long? What did they stop eating when they ate that thing? And then what happened to their health? Yeah, it was interesting 
you know, I think the guys that did this paper, they wrote it up quite nicely. It was quite balanced. And I think their interpretation and commentary around it was good. It was, it was interesting to see how the media then took a hold of it and used it to say, see, plant-based alternative meats are no match for meat. And that was sort of the lay, I guess, interpretation, which is missing, you know, all of this nuance that you're speaking to. And I, I didn't see that anywhere in the paper that said the plants are missing this, said we found there. In fact, as I recall, it said there are a whole lot of chemicals in the plants that aren't in the meat. Yeah, that's right. So there was 22 compounds that were exclusive to the animal-based meat, and then there was 31 exclusive compounds found in the plant-based meat. Let's change gears here and, and move into the swap meat trial, one that you performed with your colleagues at Stanford. This was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Where would you place this journal, I guess, in terms of prestige and, and, and reputation before we jump into the study itself? Oh, sure. This is one of the top nutrition journals. So that and Annals of uh, Nutrition are probably the top two of all the nutrition journals. And just on that, and this is more of a, a, a curious question from my end, when you go to write up a study, have you already got a fair idea as to which journal you're wanting to get it published in? Or do you write it up and then put the feelers out to multiple journals? How, how does that look? Yeah, no, fun question. Uh, I really don't decide that in the beginning. Absolutely not. I wait to see uh, how the conduct goes and the implementation and what the findings are. Uh, and certainly don't often try quite as high if it's null findings. But I have to say a couple of times I've said, you know, I think null findings are important. And I've had some of my null findings published in good journals because the science was good. So unfortunately, it should be sort of equal, right? The positive and the null findings should all end up in a really good journal if it was a good question and if it was conducted well. So there is some bias for positive findings. It's certainly, if you do find something interesting, it's easier to get published in a better journal. That's too bad, actually. Yeah, does that affect the sort of overall body of research if a lot of null findings are not making their way into journals? It does, but statisticians have actually figured out a way to address that. So they set up an imaginary case where, okay, there's a null finding, so somebody chose not to publish this. They put it away. It wasn't exciting enough. They had two competing things to work on. One was a positive finding and one was null, and they put their energy into this one, and this one ended up in the file drawer. I've seen some statisticians say, here's an effect. I've done maybe a meta-analysis, and I've pooled the findings, and it appears that something is going on here. And just a hint, if somebody had to do a meta-analysis, it's quite likely the effect was kind of small. Because if, if it was big, and all the studies that did it found a big thing, nobody would need to pool the studies. They would say, ah, everybody who does this finds that it's a big thing. If there's a meta-analysis, it's quite likely that some of the studies almost found something, but not quite, and some did. Maybe if we pool them, we'll have more statistical power, and we'll be able to say it is statistically significant. But Quite often, that means it isn't a huge effect. It's kind of a modest effect. I've seen some of the statisticians who write those papers and say, we came up after we pooled the studies with a modest effect that many of the papers had not found individually, maybe because they were what's called statistically underpowered and didn't have enough people or go long enough. And then they say, just in case we're wrong, 
we're going to actually explore the number of null findings that could have been out there and not been published that would overturn this and bring it back to non-significance. So there's actually a statistical way to approach it and, and take care of the file drawer problem that there were other studies out there that never got published. And now you actually get into some sticky waters here because maybe they weren't published because they weren't good quality trials. Is it just because they were? it was a null finding and there wasn't the interest in pursuing it? Or is it really that they were poor quality trials? And this is one of the things that happens in meta-analyses, Simon, is there's an approach to meta-analysis which is intended to sound very objective. When they first started this, it was like, okay, usually we've got an expert in this field reviewing all this, and we're going to take the expert's opinion. Oh my gosh, there's some subjectivity there because the expert has a bias in one direction or another. Let's come up with meta-analysis. Let's come up with a mathematical way to pool all the studies that are out there, and we'll use statistics to see if something overall is going on, and then it won't have to be the expert's opinion. It will be the scientific approach of meta-analysis. However, when you start a meta-analysis, you have to define your inclusion-exclusion criteria for how many things would fit to be pooled in the meta-analysis. And so there's two approaches, and one is we're just going to take everything. We're actually going to look for unpublished papers, file drawer papers, theses. We're going to get everything that's out there, and we're going to pool it together just so that we're objective and we get everything. And I don't know if you can see the problem that's coming already with that is you pool a bunch of crappy studies in with good studies. One of the reasons they weren't published is because they weren't designed well or conducted well, and they didn't get published. And so that tends to dilute a message that you might have got from only focusing on quality studies. Okay, but as soon as you start adding inclusion exclusion criteria for the meta-analysis of what you decided to pool, all of a sudden you've got subjectivity. Because now whoever was doing the meta-analysis said, ah, I don't think this is important and I think this is really important. And so you'll see sometimes the meta-analysis will get published and someone will be outraged and say, can you believe they left out this study and this study? And you go look at the criteria and there was a reason for excluding them. And you could disagree and say, if I was pulling the studies, I would not have excluded them on that basis. And because you had excluded that study, that was one of the landmark studies in that field and they excluded it. So I don't believe the conclusion of what they pulled because they left these things out. And so now, oh my gosh, now it's not objective anymore. It's subjective again. So I'm actually not a huge fan of meta-analyses. I've seen a lot of them done by people who know the math, but it's a particular problem in nutrition when they don't know the ups and downs and the intricacies of nutrition studies, when you have to define the diet well, you have to get adherence to the diet, you have to see if it's sustainable. There's all kinds of things about nutrition that are very complex that don't fit neatly into, oh, we found all the studies that worked on this and we pooled them. Does that make sense? The meta-analysis has become the gold standard and is kind of spoken about like that, but it does make sense that we shouldn't always look at a meta-analysis as superior to, say, a single trial that's done very well, where you can clearly see the methodology and you can see that it's a very valid and reliable study. I agree. Let's go through this swap meet trial. Talk me through the, the ideation process. How did this study come about? What were the questions that 
you and your team were, were interested in exploring? Yeah, if you go way back to the day, it's been interesting. You know, there've been alternative plant burgers forever out there. Uh, the Garden Burger and some others that I remember from two decades back, never really all that popular, pretty much targeting vegetarians, which is pretty much a niche market out there. And then all of a sudden, beyond an impossible to pick two, we're just ratcheting up their production and taking off. And they were in the news all the time. Here was this incredible new thing and lots more people were trying it. And, oh, we're going on the market now and we're going public with the business. Wow, what was going on with these things? I was actually in a Beyond Meat lab about three or four years ago before any of this took off. And a friend of mine from Stanford had said, maybe you should be on their advisory board. And I said, I'll bite. I'll, I'll go see what this is. And it was kind of a little hole in the wall kitchen. And they brought me down to this place. And I went in and they, they were sizzling a burger on the grill. And they were really perplexed about the, the sounds and the smell while it was grilling. And I said, what, what, what are you doing? Don't you just care about how it tastes? And they said, no, no, no. We're after actually the meat eaters. We're not after the vegetarians. We're after the meat eaters. And we think to get them, not only will they have to taste the same, but it's going to have to look the same raw. It's going to have to change on the grill. It's going to have to sizzle the same way. It's going to have to smell that same way as it starts cooking. Oh my God, this is ridiculous. I don't know why you guys are wasting your time on this. Okay, thanks for meeting you. This sounds silly. I'm going to go back to my nutrition trials. And years later, I totally appreciate what they had in mind. That is their target audience. So I started recognizing that there's a shift going on. And for me, I've been trying to get people to eat more vegetables and plants and less meat for decades and not having much of an impact. So this was a fascinating idea that this was a unique approach, one that I wasn't accustomed to taking that you really were just trying to tell somebody this looks, smells, and tastes so similar to it that you'll be okay doing this. You, you could feel comfortable doing this, not like that plant burger that clearly isn't what you're accustomed to eating. And so I saw these things taking off, and I knew the environmental implications, and I knew the animal rights implications, and those are pretty straightforward. But then in making them, they were fitting under this category of ultra-processed, the NOVA classification of ultra-processed. And people were worried about ultra-processed food. And they thought, oh my God, they put sodium in them and saturated fat to make them taste good. They're using coconut fat. And so they've ramped up the saturated fat. They've ramped up the sodium. Oh my God, they're probably causing hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. And oh my God, Kevin Hall published a paper and people ate more calories on the ultra-processed food than the whole food. So there's going to be weight gain on top of this. So these are probably bad for you. And I thought, wait, that is the kind of study that I do. That is an answerable question. I actually have in my purview the ability to design a study that would say, okay, if you ate one versus the other, what would happen to your blood pressure, your LDL cholesterol, your weight, and other things? So... They approached me and I said, yeah, I'm in. I want to do this. People keep asking this. I keep seeing it in the media headlines. This stuff, good for the environment, good for animals, but probably bad for your health. 
you know, I said, I, I don't know how it's going to work out. I got to tell you, it's got to be an objective study. And so if it hurts people, I got to publish it. And they said, nope, we're in. We really want our stuff to do the right thing. So actually got some gift research funds. And by giving a gift, it meant it wasn't a sponsored research project. That means they didn't have any control after they gave me the money. They couldn't look at the process in the middle. They didn't get to look at the data and tell me what to write. Uh, but it is industry funding. So I hope that comes up later in our conversation that I took industry funding. I could be an industry shill. You may name call me later. Well, let's just tackle that now while, while we've got it. Okay. You mentioned then the gifting. So gifting versus industry funding. I guess my first question here is you're stating they had no effect over the study itself. Is that all the way from the design to the results to the write-up? And do you feel like industry is influencing science? I feel like right now, uh, particularly, there seems to be a lot of distrust in science for this reason. People are, are led to believe that industry is having too much impact on science and on outcomes. How do you sort of feel about all of that? Yeah. And maybe one way to address that partially is to go get Marion Nestle's new book, which focused entirely on that. And in her book, she went through this and said, there is a clear trend that if industry funds it, and there are comparative non-industry funded studies, the industry funded studies consistently show a rosier picture for industry, which is no big surprise. So you, you should be concerned. And that's why journals these days always say you have to say where you got your money. You have to say if there's a conflict of interest. Okay, and that, so that's hugely important. I absolutely would agree. You should check and you should be, as soon as you see that it's funded by industry, you should be skeptical. There's another side of that equation, which was the National Institutes of Health were not putting out any advertisements or suggesting that they were going to fund something like this. They tend to fund drug studies and device studies and other things. They really don't fund much in the area of nutrition as a whole, although they've taken a new stance and they, they are promising to do more with nutrition. I'm really excited about that. But really, a small fraction of the government funding that's the best, the cleanest, the most objective goes there. But there are so many nutrition questions to answer. If you waited for government funding that was totally objective, it wouldn't all get done. And so to do some of those studies, if there isn't industry funding, then a lot of those studies won't get done. So it's not just like, oh, you know, I realize it would be more objective if I got NIH funding, so I just will. I can't tell you how many grants I've written that have been rejected in my life. Some of them that I think were brilliant, uh, and the reviewers didn't seem to agree. So in all likelihood, this trial, for example, may not have gone ahead without this, this gifting. Exactly. Yeah. And so I took it. And then there are steps, there are multiple steps that you can take. And we took them. So those are the steps to ensure the integrity of the study and, and the, I guess, a bit of distancing between the science and the, the brand and marketing? Yeah. So one of them starts at Stanford University so that if this is not what's called a sponsored project uh, versus a gift. So in a sponsored project, it's clear that industry is funding this and they get quarterly reports. They can challenge some of what you're doing. They can ask you to modify something because they are sponsoring it. And if it's a gift, they can't be allowed to expect any feedback 
any interim results, anything. And it actually happens in both cases at the end. This part is the same. Regardless of what we find, we have to be able to publish it. Stanford wouldn't let us take the money if we found something that looked negative for the company, but we withheld it. But the gift goes a step further is that they can't see the interim, and they're not allowed to ask for the interim reports, can't have any influence over anything. And so that is the first step. So that part's good. A really nice thing has happened recently in the last five to 10 years, maybe longer than that, is a new thing that the NIH put together and it's called uh, ct.gov, clinicaltrials.gov. And one of the things you have to do there is ahead of time at the very beginning of your study, and you're actually required to do this before you recruit and enroll the very first person, is if you have to register online for what the study is that you're doing, what the study population is, what the primary outcome is that you're going to study, the statistical analysis plan that you're going to use, all of that has to be submitted in advance. Because what they were finding was somebody would do a study and look at 20 different things uh, with something in theory in mind as the main thing that they were going to look at, which didn't work and didn't change. But one of the minor things changed. And they wrote a paper and said, hey, we did a study on this thing, the minor thing, and it worked. So our hypothesis was correct. And people noticed, wait a sec, that wasn't your original hypothesis. It was another thing. And by the time you've looked at 20 things, by chance, one of those should have been statistically significant just by chance alone. So that's not fair. So these days, if you go and you switch what that primary outcome was, when I submit a paper now, the reviewers go and look at the ct.gov registration, and I've actually changed minor things in them. So for my diet fit study, which I submitted to a journal, which I won't mention just to be protective here, it was rejected before it went out for review because we had changed something. So, and let me just tell you what it was, just to be a little more specific here. The NIH funded my diet fits weight loss study to look at 400 people with one primary outcome, and that was genotype. And I actually got some funding from the Nutrition Science Initiative to add $5 million to the $3 million that the NIH gave me and expanded it from 400 people to 600 people, which allowed me the opportunity to look at two primary outcomes because now I had more people and more statistical power. And so then I looked at genotype and insulin resistance. And so our paper, which ended up in JAMA and got a super amazing altmetric score, it was the highest altmetric score of all of JAMA papers in 2018. There was another journal who turned it down because somebody went to ct.gov and they saw that I had switched the primary outcome. What's altmetrics for someone who hasn't heard of altmetrics before? Great, great question. So, you know, a, a standard way to evaluate research, Simon, is going to be how many people over the next decade cite your paper and use it in the research that they're doing. What Altmetrics does is it immediately shows you how much sort of social media presence you got. How many newspaper headlines were you in? How often was it in Facebook? How often did it get tweeted? And so it's, it's definitely not as objective as the scientific currency of who cited your work in years later, but it's more of an immediate thing. How interesting was this topic? To the general community. So we did that. And another thing is that you can have a third party analyze your data. 
So instead of you and your postdocs analyzing it and say, hey, I looked at it this way. Can you look at it another way? I did, and it still didn't work. Let's look at it another way. So if you have a statistical analysis plan ahead of time and you finish the study and you can do what's called locking down the data so that you have a main database, all the data are in. Usually when you finish a study, Simon, you have to do a little bit of cleanup. Like, oh, this thing's missing. Wait, I know that person finished this study. Oh my God, somebody recorded it over here. So there's always a little cleanup of data at the end of a study. But once you feel like you have it all, you can lock it down so that nobody can ever change that file again. Nobody can mess with the data. And after locking down the data, you can have a third party analyze it because there's already a statistical analysis plan. So that was another thing that we did at Stanford. We have a group called the Quantitative Sciences Unit. It's a separate unit. That's their specialty of statistical analysis. And so we had Kristen Cunninan analyze all our data according to the statistical analysis plan after it was locked down, according to what we said we were doing at ct.gov. So those are the kinds of steps that you can take to protect any kind of industry influence or bias. Those help. And we did those. Hey, friends. I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I mean, some of that stuff you're doing on your own accord. Do you feel that as an industry, there needs to be stronger sort of regulation in terms of what is mandatory in order to to really remove industry presence and make sure what we're seeing is very valid science? So the journals are actually doing this. You know, just like I got rejected from that one journal before our Diet Fits paper got published because we sort of tweaked one of the three legs on the stool, they, they weren't even going to look at it because we did that. And so as you get rejected for papers like that, you think, well, I'm going to have to do this right the next time. I really do think it's helping. Not all journals require it, but I really do think it's helping for the, the higher level journals that are publishing the higher presence topics. And so do you look at a study any differently if it says that it has been sponsored by an industry as, as a scientist that's reviewing it to see the methodology and their findings? Are you still somewhat skeptical of the involvement or are you comfortable with all of these things that are in place that there is unlikely to be chance of bias there? No, I'm still skeptical. You still have to be skeptical and keep an eye open. So we did a study a long time ago with a dietary supplement and the dietary supplement was going to help with a health outcome. And there was a control group, a placebo pill, and it didn't help. And we sent the company the paper before we published it. And we said, you know, sorry, but uh, we took this unwillingly and it didn't help. And we are going to publish that. And they wrote back and they said, can you frame it a little differently? Can you say it didn't hurt? And I said, well, nobody expected it to hurt. They said, yeah, but couldn't you frame it that way? Instead of saying it didn't work, how about if you say it didn't hurt? There weren't any negative consequences. And it occurred to me at that time that those were both correct statements. But that's not what I was studying. 
And so I thought in my mind, I, technically, I won't violate anything if I say it didn't hurt. And maybe they'll give me more money the next time. Let's see, should I switch this? So there's some really subtle ways there could still be industry influence, even if you've done all these things. They could propose something where it's not overturning the result, but it's a slant on the result that might lead to a different headline. This study, you've talked about the inspiration behind it and why you wanted to, to look at it. Talk me through the, the methodology. You recruited 36 participants who were healthy adults. They were regular uh, meat eaters, and then they were randomized into one of two diet sequences. The first question I have here, you've mentioned statistical power a few times. I think this will be interesting for people who have perhaps not come across this or want to understand it a little more. When you set up a study like this, how do you go about determining how many people you require and how long the trial needs to be to have enough statistical power? Great question. So it depends how geeky you want to get. There's really five components to statistical power. You could go on Google and say, calculate statistical power and formulas would come up and you have to list the alpha and the beta. Then you have to say what you think the minimally meaningful difference is. So let's say you're trying to lower weight or cholesterol and you actually have to make this decision and you say, I think Boy, if I went to all this trouble and they lost four pounds, I would be interested. But if they lost three pounds, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be worth all the trouble for three. And Simon, you might disagree. You might think about, oh, for all that trouble, I would think they'd have to lose 10 pounds. And so if they lost nine, I'm not interested. You have to pick whatever you think this difference should be that should be the minimally meaningful difference in the study that you have. And then once you've picked that, you have to know something about how variable the changes are in that thing day to day. So if it's weight, how much does your weight change day to day? How much does your LDL cholesterol change day to day? And if you don't know that, you have to go to the literature and guess what that number is. The last of the five components is how many people it would take to determine that. So if you go on these online Google things, you can add the first four things and it'll say, boop, you need 35 people in a group or 60 people in a group, or 100 people in a group. And what you'll find is you can change that sample size by saying, oh, never mind, I think I want to see a bigger difference, or I have more data and the variability is lower, or oh, I don't want to be so stringent, or I want to be more stringent about my error probability. And as you tweak all those, the sample size changes. So that's the God-honest answer of how we figure out how many people you need in a study. There's five components, and the sample size is one of the five. And if you know the other four, you can generate the last one. I don't know if that was helpful, but I hope so. No, it is. And and I guess to sort of tie that together, that calculation then spits out the minimum number of people that are required in order to detect a significant difference for that particular outcome, be it weight or LDL cholesterol or whatever you're interested in looking at. Yes, we picked a crossover so we could do it with fewer people. Okay, cool. So you ended up with the 36 participants. Walk us through how the two diet phases worked, uh, why you sort of settled on eight weeks for each. And then after that, we can dig into, I guess, some of the uh, finer details on what they were eating. Yeah. Okay. So try to get in my head and I'm planning something and I want people to volunteer for this and sign up. 
and adhere to it and do it. And I need to get promoted and I need to publish my paper on time. So wouldn't I like them to eat whatever they wanted for 10 years each? And I got to see if they lived or died. Sure. But that's really not going to happen. Okay. And I know they do it for a day. That would be easy, but no one would publish it. How about a week? Would anybody publish that? Well, there's a lot of metabolism things that don't change in a week. How about LDL cholesterol? We actually have tons of data that will show that if you were on a stable diet and had a fairly stable lipid level, you completely changed your diet to something else and did it for two weeks, you would see a change in LDL cholesterol or triglyceride or HDL for two weeks, and then you wouldn't see any more change. It would be stable after that. Pretty much the same would be true of blood pressure. In about two weeks, you can change it and restabilize it at a new level. What about insulin and glucose? I don't know those quite as well as I know the lipids and the blood pressure, but certainly in a month, you could change that. What if you wanted to look glucose-wise at what's called glycosylated hemoglobin, HbA1c, which is in a lot of these studies where they're looking at glucose control? HbA1c is a reflection of how many of your red blood cells get glucose hooked to them. They get glycosylated. And the life of a red blood cell is three months. So if HbA1c is your outcome, you probably should have a two or three month study. Even if maybe your glucose levels stabilized, restabilized in two to three to four weeks, if HbA1c was the one that you were looking at, you would need it to be longer. So in my head, Simon, I'm thinking, one, what is the science? Okay, the lipid, the blood pressure, the data. Oh, TMAO, I'm not actually sure how long that takes. I've got some insulin and glucose in there. I've got to look somebody in the eye and tell them, I need you for 16 weeks. For eight weeks, you got to do this. And for eight weeks, you got to do that. Well, that's pretty many weeks. I wonder who would sign up for the study and agree to do both of these. And they don't get to choose what they're eating for all those meals. Wow. So some of it's practical and some of it's scientific. And so in the kinds of studies that I do, and I'll remind you that I don't do the Kevin Hall's tiny studies where I feed everybody all their food and he calls it domiciled. I call it incarcerating them. So you imprison them and they can't leave and they have to eat what you're doing. Mine are what I call free living studies. And so I'm trying to get people live their own lives, but eat differently it's still a huge imposition to ask them to make these kinds of changes in their diet. So for me, Simon, it's always a balance of the practicality and the science. So sort of what I think in my mind is, what do I think would be the minimum amount of time that the reviewers would think that's enough to see a change? And I would tend to add to that just in case there was a reviewer out there who thought, oh, I don't think that's quite enough. I would hate to finish the whole study and turn around and have somebody say, oh, you did that for four weeks? You should have done it for six. So maybe I'll do it for eight, just in case I've covered myself that I know it'll change in two to four. Some outlier is going to say six, but I think I can get people to eat it for eight, but not a year. I don't think I need a year to show this. That's above and beyond. And I think that's sort of ridiculous to push people to change their diet for that long to see what happens. So that's in my head for duration. I've certainly seen people comment on Kevin Hall's studies saying, oh, just four weeks. And then I think, well, hang on, let's think about the subjects, what they had yeah. to do in order to participate in that. They were locked up. You don't get to see loved ones unless somebody sneaks you in some, oh no, don't let them in. They're sneaking in, <laughs> in snacks. Okay. So 
eight weeks of a plant phase, eight weeks of an animal phase. Talk me through the details. Okay, and then you got to decide on dose. Oh my God, dose, right? Okay, let's see. Let's have a meat. Nothing but red meat and nothing but beyond meat for eight weeks. No, no one's going to do that. You'd get so sick and tired of that. Okay, once a week. No, once a week isn't enough to make a difference. Okay, once a day. Okay, how many calories are in these things? Well, you know, a couple hundred calories. So if they're going to eat 2,000 calories a day and they're getting it once a day, that's like 10% of what they're eating and 90% of what they're eating is the same as what they always ate. God, is that, wait, how many grams of fiber are in that? How many grams of saturated fat are in that? How much saturated fat and fiber are they eating anyway? So we really went back and forth on this for quite a while. And we said two, two servings a day. That's what we're going to ask them. But I hope your listeners will appreciate how arbitrary that is. There was really no science that said, we're going to do a red meat versus alternative meat study, which obviously means two servings a day. No, it doesn't obviously mean that. And so what I tend to do in the studies that I work on, I try to pick a dose that's realistic, but a little higher than probably what most people would eat, right? Because I think if most people would think, you know, I have this about once a day, and I did it once a day, and there was an effect, but it, it wasn't quite enough to be statistically significant, then I think, oh my God, I did all that work and I just missed it. Maybe if I did a slightly higher dose, and here's a silly grantsmanship thing that I'll tell you. If I do a higher dose and I get an effect, I can write to a funding agency and I say, I got an effect. Maybe I could get it with half. Can I have some more grant money? And I'll run the whole study again with half. I'm much more likely to get that funded than to do a study with half and say, oh, I just missed it. Can I have more money and do the whole thing over? And they'll say, no, you had your shot. You can have more money. Pick another question. And so there's actually a little grantsmanship perspective to going a little high in the dose. So we picked two servings a day, which ended up to be about 25% of their calories just from the animal meat or the beyond meat. Well, can I ask what your reaction is to 25% of daily calories? I'd be curious to get your feedback. Well, I would, I would be interested to first know what was the habitual intake of meat in these, in these subjects before the trial? Ah, it varied quite a bit, but the average was only about one serving a day. We definitely excluded vegetarians and vegans because they had to eat animal meat, so that wouldn't have worked. Um, and so one of the criteria was, do you already eat meat? And we said that up front, but it wasn't until the end that we characterized it. And we actually realized they were eating more meat on our study when they ate animal meat than they were, according to their self-report, before the study. And then how do we get them this food? And, and what do we pick for animal meat? This is another fun one, right? And so I feel like in my field, some of us are guilty of a bias where they say, I have this thing that I think they should eat, whether it's carrots or beyond meat or blueberries for their anthocyanins. And I want to compare it to something and I want mine to win. So let's see, the other people aren't going to eat this thing. And so they have to get the same number of calories as the group eating this thing. I want them to eat something else. Let's see, I'll just give them sugar. Okay, that would be terrible. Of course, your thing is going to win if you give them sugar. Okay, I'm going to give them really crappy burgers. I'm going to give them like the lowest quality meat 
I can find. That would probably have a better chance, wouldn't you think, of coming out as superior. So in our minds, as we walked through this, we said, well, why don't we go to a San Francisco-based company and ask for organic, pasture-raised animal products? And so we found somebody who, that was their specialty, was catering to the San Francisco crowd that was very interested that it was you know, humanely raised and environmentally as, as good as possible and organic and all those things. And so that was an extra step that we're very pleased that we took. That we sort of found the highest quality animal meats to compare. And now, Simon, another question is, do you ask everybody to go out and buy these at a store or do you buy it for them and give it to them? We're not going to do the Kevin Hall study where we incarcerate them and slip it under the door in a window with bars and the door with a lock on it. Um, but we do want more control. So we actually purchased all the Beyond Meat, purchased all the animal meat from the San Francisco-based group and provided that to everybody. So they had that for the full eight weeks on both phases. And they had variety because Beyond Meat makes a burger and a crumble and they make sausages. Sorry, the crumble was like ground beef and sausages. And at one point they had a chicken offering um, that we used at that time. So they had four or five options. And what we had to do was you have some flexibility as you start eating this. If you really don't like chicken, you can have less. If you really like chicken, you can have more. Same thing for sausages. But whatever you have in the first phase, you have to match that in the second phase. So be ready. If you said you really only want sausages in the first phase, you only get sausages in the second phase. So we are encouraging you to take advantage of the variety here because you've got to do this for eight weeks each. And on a weekly basis, we're sending you these things. Um, and we need you to match that. Now for one extra step, picture this if you will. This is where we lose some control, but we probably gain in terms of generalizability. We said, so are we going to tell you what to put on your burger? We're not. But if you have a white bun burger in one phase, you have to use a white bun burger in the second phase. And if you have a whole wheat burger in one phase, you got to use whole wheat burger. Mayonnaise, mayonnaise. Mustard, mustard. Iceberg lettuce, iceberg lettuce. Red leaf organic lettuce, then red leaf organic lettuce in both. Whatever it was, you were supposed to eat the same. And then for breakfast, if you weren't having any of these meat products for breakfast, Whatever breakfast you normally have, please have the same breakfasts, both phases. And we had to leave that up to them because we weren't providing all their food. And so we lose some control there, if that makes sense. But that was an intentional and conscious decision. Was that driven more from a cost point of view of supplying all of the food or more of a, a generalizability? You know, what happens in the real world if someone just says look, I'm going to make the switch over to Beyond Meat products instead of the meat that I eat. Yep. And, and for me, that was both. Um, it definitely would have cost more, but I wanted to see this in the context of real life. That may be the only switch that you're making. You bought this burger instead of this one, this sausage instead of this one, but you fit that into the rest of your life and you got to have the bun you wanted and the lettuce you wanted and the condiments that you wanted on those things which also gives them just from a, an adherence point of view or a retention, keeping people in the study. You know, if you take away all their liberties of choosing their food, then it's harder for them to stick with it. 
So part of it, again, is practical. Another thing a reviewer is going to look at at the end when you try to publish your study is how many dropouts did you have? And we had very few. We only had a couple. We actually had fabulous retention in this study, despite it being 16 weeks of eating two servings a day of one thing or the other. Okay, so you have these two groups. One group, they're doing the plant phase first for eight weeks and then the animal phase for eight weeks. And then the other groups, the opposite. So animal phase first and then the plant phase. I'm wondering about a washout period. Some studies like this will will often use a washout period. Can you speak to, I guess, firstly, what that is, why some studies are interested in using it in their methodology and and why in this particular study you decided not to do it? Yeah, I'm actually hoping to write a paper about are washouts necessary or, or important? So can I start with the worst case scenario is that you do something in phase one where you have an impact on your health and something, let's say, gets much better. And so when you start phase two on whatever the comparison treatment is, you're starting at a place where that your health is already improved and so there isn't much room left for improvement. And so if you were sort of looking for change on both arms and then you compare them, it's not fair. One way to address this is to put them in random order, which helps. The ideal thing would be Whatever all your values were, let's say your weight, your LDL cholesterol, your trimethylamine oxide, whatever they were at baseline, you do the first phase in a crossover study, and then you have a washout, and you wait till everything returns to exactly what it was at baseline, and then you do the second phase. That would be ideal. In the studies that I've looked at, that never happens. You can never get it to return to exactly what it was at baseline because all those values in people change from day to day. It's like, oh, today's the perfect day to start. Oh no, the blood pressure was a little lower. Okay, today's the perfect day to start. Oh no, the blood pressure is okay, but now the LDL cholesterol is a little high. And so a problem with this washout concept is thinking that somebody will return exactly to baseline. I actually question that because I don't think anybody ever really perfectly returns to baseline and certainly not everybody in your study. And I feel like that prolongs the duration of the study and gives somebody a chance to drop out and not do the second phase. I'm not a fan of washouts. Uh, We actually did a couple people needed a break. One person took a trip and a couple other people, something happened. We said, okay, if there's any time to do it, it's right now. You can have a few weeks off. But the majority of them just went from one phase to the other. You've mentioned some of the outcomes that you were interested in measuring. Tell me about the results. What did you end up measuring and and what did you learn from those results? Okay, drum roll. After all this, you know, we were hoping to see if anything would change. Now, the primary thing we picked, which I have to admit, is, is almost a foregone conclusion. So we decided to look at trimethylamine oxide. And I'm going to guess a lot of your listeners haven't heard of this. I will say that I'm an avid member of the American Heart Association. For the last 10 years, every year I go to a meeting, there's a whole session on trimethylamine oxide, and people are talking about it as an emerging risk factor in heart disease. And it hasn't really got to the point where your clinician says, now that you've come in, I'm going to look at your blood pressure and your weight and your cholesterol and your TMAO. But it is, it's out there, it keeps growing. It looks like 
It's a risk factor for immune function and inflammation and blood clotting. And interestingly, you make this molecule from something that comes in meat. You make it from carnitine or choline. It actually needs your microbiome to make it. And so if you are eating meat and these molecules go to the gut, you tend to ferment them and produce this thing called trimethylamine. And then it goes into your circulation and your liver modifies it again to trimethylamine oxide. And a guy named Stan Hazen at the Cleveland Clinic has spent a decade trying to show that this thing is a really important thing and we should try to lower it. He's even written a whole paper saying, you know, the thing with red meat might not be the saturated fat. It might be the TMAO. So our primary outcome was TMAO. And we pretty much expected that to get better because there isn't carnitine or choline in plants. So that was kind of a no-brainer, although there was. There is a twist to that story, and it, it kind of comes back to bite me for the, the washout period. But TMAO was the primary outcome listed on CT.gov that we've talked about before. And it changed significantly. It was higher on meat than it was on alternative meat, which makes sense. No one should be surprised. The LDL cholesterol was lower on the alternative meat than the animal meat. And it was lower by 10 milligrams per deciliter, which is a pretty good jump for somebody trying to lower their cholesterol by making this one modest change. And if you'll look at all our diet records, that'll track back to at least three things, maybe four. One is the alternative meats had lower saturated fat than the animal meats. They had more fiber. Both of those things should lower your LDL cholesterol. There is more plant protein. So there's an older literature that not too many people talk about anymore, that the specific distribution of amino acids in plant protein versus animal protein helps to lower LDL cholesterol. There's actually FDA-approved health claim that soy protein lowers LDL cholesterol. Not sure I actually believe that, but it's an approved health claim. And weight loss helps with lowering LDL cholesterol. And interestingly, the most statistically significant finding of our whole study was weight loss. And I have to make sure I explain this very carefully. It was very modest weight change. It was about two pounds. So for the eight weeks they were on plant meat, almost everyone was two pounds less than when they were on animal meat for eight weeks. And two pounds isn't very much. And here's where the interesting thing about statistical significance comes up. One thing that drives statistical significance is how big the change is. And the second thing that drives it is how consistent it is. And it's sort of everybody is two pounds lower. It doesn't have to be a lot. It's just amazing that everybody was a little bit lower. And so it wasn't much. It wasn't very much weight, but it was so consistent. It had the, the smallest p-value. That's the probability value. So the smallest probability that it was due to chance alone, which means I don't think it was due to chance. I think it was due to the plant meat. Very, very modest weight change, but that also would have lowered the LDL. So LDL goes down probably because of saturated fat, fiber, the plant protein, and the weight loss. The weight loss is the other thing that's significant. And then we have one thing that's not significant that is significant, and the blood pressure wasn't different on the two groups. So very interestingly, one of the things that the alternative meats have been slammed for is being high sodium, ultra processed. And if you look at a bunch of the products, they are. But in fact, if you looked at the, the really nice organic pasteurized sourced sausage we got for the animal meat, 
those did actually have a lot of sodium in them. That's how you make sausage. If we look at the burgers and the crumbles for the animal meat, the ground beef or the burgers, they didn't have sodium in them, but people flavored them with sodium. And so, yes, the Beyond Meat crumbles and burger had more sodium than just a plain ground beef. But by the time they flavored them with sodium, it turned out the sodium in the two groups, because we were tracking diet along, took a lot of diet assessment data collections here. Sodium was virtually identical from the products that we gave and from the non-products that they were eating. And blood pressure didn't change in either phase and wasn't different between them. So I actually think the fact that the blood pressure wasn't different and virtually identical is actually pretty powerful given how often they've been slammed for being ultra-processed food with high sodium that would raise your blood pressure, and it didn't. So helps TMAO, helps LDL cholesterol, helps weight, doesn't make blood pressure worse. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Talk to me about the weight a little bit more here. You said it was a it was a small amount, but consistent. The plant-based products that people were eating during the plant phase were similar in calories to the animal products. And also they are classified as ultra-processed foods, like you said earlier, and which Kevin Hall's work has shown people tend to overconsume are hyper palatable and may drive hunger. What mechanisms, what do you think was at play that may have led to the small but consistent weight loss? Yeah, and that I can't figure out because according to the calories they reported, they were the same. They reported virtually the same number of calories on both phases, picking their own bun and lettuce and condiment and things that they ate with it. So I can't explain why. It's possible it's just a fluke, but very importantly, they didn't gain weight. Right? If you had looked at Kevin Hall's study, you would have said, ah, since this is ultra-processed, they're probably going to gain weight. It'd be really hard to explain. There really is a gaining weight thing that comes from these burgers, but it turned out to be lowering their weight. Uh, and that was just wrong. That was just a mistake. It really does cause you to gain weight. No, that would make it even harder for me to believe that switching real meat for these alternative meats would cause weight gain. If you go back to Kevin Hall's study, which was beautiful and elegant, this is a study where they had put um, multiple plates out with all the kind of foods they were serving. It's something called ad libitum. You're just supposed to take as much as you want till you feel full. Doesn't really matter. They make all the plates very similar so that no matter how many you take, you're sort of, you're, you're intended to get the same overall balance of macronutrients and things like that, the same number of cookies, the same number of entrees, the same number of breakfasts, whatever. Overall, everything was intended to be ultra-processed in one arm of the study, and the other was all whole foods. So I think that's very different than just saying, of all the things you're eating in this day, when you get to your burger or sausage or chicken, that's going to be one thing or the other. And one of them is going to be an alternative meat, 
And technically, it qualifies as being ultra-processed according to the NOVA classification, but it did not cause them to eat more calories. So we didn't get a higher calorie report. And not only did it not cause them to gain weight, we had a statistically significant finding where they lowered their weight. And I can't explain it. That's interesting just to sort of ponder though. I mean, it speaks to, I guess, when we think about ultra-processed foods, it's a bit of an umbrella. Are they all equal? Are there different types? Does it boil down to the application within the diet and the exposure level, uh, which you sort of just alluded to? You mentioned at the start of this conversation, three years earlier, you had that time with Beyond Meat and they, they were showing you the sizzle and the, the things that were exciting them. And you potentially had a hypothesis that these food products may have a bit of a halo effect like we've seen with other foods. Maybe perhaps they're not that healthy. You've done this trial. I wonder where you sort of now sit when you think about these foods within an overall dietary pattern or as an alternative to meat. What is your view on this category? Yeah. Oh, it's a great question just to help sort of wrap this up because I spent 25 years thinking I could help people if I did science and get results and publish them in journals and change people's diet. And I have found some things that worked and some things that didn't work. So I have no findings and I have positive findings. I presented them in medical conferences. I've been covered in the newspaper and most people don't change their diet. I actually come from a division at Stanford, the Stanford Prevention Research Center. It's been here for 50 years very community research-based oriented, very lifestyle oriented. And it's been 20 or 30 years since they found out as a division of all the studies that they do that you can do lifestyle change education and you can show that people learn more and cognitively know that this thing is better than that without changing their behaviors. Like they know they should be more physically active. They know they should eat more vegetables and less meat. They know they shouldn't smoke, but they're sedentary and they ate potato chips and they lit up cigarette. So there's a huge disconnect there. So I can always, when I give my most passionate lecture, if there's enough people, I can usually get somebody to change their diet, but I don't get everybody and I don't get half and I don't get a third. And so part of my understanding of nutrition that's evolved over the last 20 or 30 years has been thinking about what impact does the food industry have? How about the food systems type issues like universities, hospitals, work sites? What are they serving? They are serving the default foods to all those people. They have the chefs ordering, preparing, presenting. What if they're presenting as a default some of these different options? Can they get people to eat differently? Oh my God, they can. Better than me, because they ordered it. Now they have to, if you're at a university or a hospital or a work site, and people complain that the food that's served there is awful, then they aren't going to come back and they're not going to have, they're not going to do good business. So they have to have that as a motivation. So can you? take away some of the red meat and put something in that doesn't cause a backlash. And they can with these things. This is one of the things that they do. Can they make a fabulous lentil salad? Yes, I'm getting chefs that are doing more of that. And so I got some more people doing that. But I have another group that doesn't really want the lentil salad. They would cut back on meat if they could find something that was familiar to them, that sort of looked, tasted, smelled 
the same that wasn't me. And that's what this category is doing. And it's not the people, it's a different category, a subset of the population than the ones that I can inspire to make my um, wheat berry salad or a lentil salad or a beet burger or something like that. There's another category that isn't ready for that switch. And this is one. So I'm for changing food behaviors and for helping the environment and for animal welfare and rights. There isn't one solution. I probably need a hundred solutions. And I'm really happy. I love what I do as a scientist. And I very humbly recognizing how minimal my impact is doing these studies. And so I greatly, I, I feel like this is a partnership. Somebody's creating some options out there that people are excited about. So one, I'm really intrigued that they're making these options and they're not intended for vegetarians or vegans. They really are intended for animal food eaters. And two, I'm fascinated at this at least initial level of enthusiasm for the last five years and how rapidly it's growing. When I look at grocery stores and I think what has changed in grocery stores in 10 years, not that much. This is one of those few things that is quite normal now and fascinating to me. So I'm going to ride this for a while, see where it goes. Yes, I'm, I'm certainly with you there. I think sometimes that the compared to what is left out of this conversation, because sure, if you were to think about lentils versus a, a plant-based burger, that's a whole different conversation. But you know, I think what you're speaking about in terms of helping people make changes that they're actually going to make and, and adhere to. Trying to convince the whole world to eat lentils tomorrow is going to be a very difficult task. Now, to finally bring this one to a close, with regards to this space, is there any questions that perhaps have come up post this study or further areas of science looking at plant-based alternatives that you would perhaps like to explore in the future? And we are. So the swap meet was, and just for those of you who are listening and hadn't heard of this before, we love this nickname. So swap meet is the study with appetizing plant food, a meat eating alternative trial. We're now doing swap meat for athletes. So the original target population we picked, because I heard so many critiques of this being bad for your health because of saturated fat and LDL cholesterol, bad for your blood pressure because of the sodium, bad for your weight because it was ultra processed. The other side of the coin here was while we were doing this, that documentary Game Changers came out which showed all those plant-based eaters at elite levels of many different fields in the athletic world. So not only did we have runners and swimmers and bike riders, but we had the guy competing for the strongest man in the world competition. And we had bodybuilders and we had a football team. And so we had some very muscular people doing fine on a plant-based diet. So our latest study, Simon, has been with Stanford athletes. Now, not actually the varsity athletes on elite teams. Turns out the coaches really don't want to work with me. Hey, guys, I'm on your campus. I'm a nutrition professor. I know you hear a lot of things about nutrition. We could answer the questions. We could do these studies. Don't touch our athletes. We have a very specific program. Stay away from our athletes. But if you can imagine on campus, we have hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people who work out regularly. So, and in the two camps, we have runners and we have weightlifters. So we have distance folks, and we have resistance trainers. And so we are just completing a pilot study 
and we added an arm to swap meet. It's still a crossover. Uh, the first 16 people finished this week. We only have 24 altogether. So the three arms are animal meat, plant-based meat, and no meat going vegan. So now I'll be able to answer those questions for the people who said, wait, why didn't you just get them to go vegan? I said, well, I'll bet not everybody wants to go vegan. So we're going to ask these 12 runners and 12 weightlifters what they thought of going for four weeks each on two servings a day of animal meat or meat alternatives or no meat at all. And what we're really hoping is this. We think we have a funding opportunity with a group out there that would help us do this in a couple hundred students. And so this is the pilot data where we are now learning not about blood pressure and, and drawing blood, but you know what are the performance things we should do. So for running, for example, we have a timed 12-minute run for distance is the thing for the runners. And then for the weightlifters, we had the pandemic and the gyms were closed. So we actually bought everybody a pull-up bar and told them to do pull-ups and push-ups. But now that the gyms are open, it'll probably be a bench press and a lat pull-down and a leg press. And so they're supposed to just do their normal training. These, you only get to join the study if you had already been running or weightlifting for two years. And you're just kind of curious. I have to tell you what's fascinating. I have no results yet. I'm really fascinated that the people who signed up were so enthusiastic at thinking, you know, I've always wondered if I, you know, I've had this regimen in my diet and I've had this routine that I work out for, you know, and it's the same. I'm not actually trying to get stronger. I just try to run and lift all the time to be in shape. I wonder if I could run faster or lift more if I changed my diet in one of these ways or the other. So it has been fascinating working with them. And it's obviously very different than blood cholesterol or blood pressure. This is a much younger group. Turns out most of them are grad students. And we're going to be after probably undergrads eating in dining halls for the full study if we get it funded. But that is the next direction. We'd like to take it in the performance area. As much as I like the movie Game Changers, I really thought some of the science was pretty hokey for some of the things they did in that documentary. And it didn't have to be. It could have been better science for some of the things plant-based versus animal-based. So that's our next step. Very cool. I think there'll be uh, a lot of a lot of excited people waiting around the world for the results of that. You have to come back and uh, share that one with us when you know a little more. Yes. Okay. Happy to do that. All right, Dr. Gardner, as always, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Great question, Simon. I love that you love this topic. It's always fun talking to you. It's been a blast. Thanks. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with 
performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by Nutrikind. This is a product I formulated for Nutrikind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutraKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.